Thank you so much, Pastor Jason, for leading us in our service. Thank you to your children for reading God's Word with such gusto, but such reverence of God and His Word. Thank you to our musicians led by Valerie and all the hard work you, put, uh, you do behind the scenes to make sure that the worship in song comes up and uplifts us. And we pray that you've been singing. And in the last song that we're going to sing today, you're singing in unison, in fellowship, in thanksgiving to God. For all who have just joined us, my name is Pastor Chris. Adam Road Presbyterian Church, you've tuned in a good time because we are preaching through the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And so the theme for today, one of the major th thoughts we want to think about is actually visitation. Visitation. And what do we mean by that? Um, doesn't take much observation in the world around us that life has changed. Life has changed in the way we do schooling, studies. Life has changed in the way we work. Life has changed both at home and everywhere in the way we relate. And this is the only time that during a week I can speak to someone in a social situation without a mask on because I'm here recording this with no one in front of me except for the tech crew. So life has changed. And in the early months when we experienced this here in Singapore, um, the number one question asked of us as pastors was, how has ministry changed for you? What are the things you can do, cannot do? How are you reaching people now, especially during the circuit breaker? And the simple answer is, during the circuit breaker or during the shutdown or the shut-in in many countries, the equivalent, we couldn't do any real on-site on physical ministry. But by God's grace, through time, when things have stabilized in our different nations and here in Singapore, it has stabilized and our measures are relaxed. And so we are able to do a little bit more. And so by God's grace, uh, Mona and myself are able to meet people a bit more, counsel them uh, phys physically, face-to-face, -to, -face, to, to eyeball them in their joy, to eyeball them in their sadness. And one of the things that Mona, my wife, loves to do is visit young mothers with new babies. And by God's grace, over the years, there has been a great number. And even during this COVID-19 year, uh, we think we're going to perhaps hit a record of 40 or more babies in our midst. And so the moment the measures were relaxed, she had opportunity to visit. And every time she visits, she says, at the end of that visit or during that visit, they're so appreciative, the mothers. And they're longing to speak to someone. They could not stop talking during the half an hour, one hour that Mona was there because they've been so cooped up. They just wanted to share, to fellowship. And it's the conversation, the visit was warm, is uplifting, so thankful, so appreciative. Couldn't stop thanking God for this undeserved visit. Which tells you, the visitations that we treasure are those that come to share good news, to cheer us up, to spur us on. And just as evidence of this, Hopefully, I'll get the slides going with this. The visitations we treasure. Look at the joys there. Even the baby's smiling. Look at the joys there. Right? And so we treasure this because we've come to cheer people up and to spur people on. That's the bright side of visits and visitation. But on the other hand, there are visits and visitations that we reject, that we resent, that we hate let alone appreciate and thank and thank people for. So true story of a drug addict, so desperate for his heroin fix, so desperate that did not care, did not care anymore. He was smoking it out in the open and then he was huddled at a stairway landing in the third story of a housing board flat here in Singapore at Bukit Merah. Then... The police came knocking. The police came visiting. He was so desperate, he climbed over the railing, he jumped to the ground, he smashed both his ankles, he was arrested, and that was 1983. And that was Hanel Chung, who is now on star with us, has been on star. He spent years running away from the authorities. He spent years trying to run away from drugs and drug addiction, but he couldn't until the Lord Jesus broke into his life. He now works for, the, for us here, proclaiming the gospel, and he runs, and he runs to raise awareness of a new life, a healthy life under God. So, what are the visitations that we detest, we hate, we are repulsed, we are repulsed with? 
the visitations we detest are visitations that expose, expose our sin or stop us in our tracks. As much as Hanel hated this, right? when the police came knocking, he jumped, he wanted to run, he wanted to hide, do everything but confess his sin and pay the penalty for his sin of drug addiction that was destroying his life and the life of his family. And so, Genesis 18 to 19, these two seminal chapters in the Bible, the first book of the Bible, is all about visitations. You could call these two chapters a tale of two visits, but with a distinct difference. And what's the distinct difference? This is not the ordinary visits of a fellow human being. These two incidences recorded for us are the visitations of God. Firstly, to Abraham, and then to Lot, who lived in Sodom. And as we read this, the theme jumps out at us. God only ever visits us for two purposes. And the two purposes of God's visits, visitation, He visits us, on the one hand, to graciously and undeservedly knock on our door to bless us. Or, he visits us to rightly and justly gate crash to judge us. And we see that in his visitations to Abraham and his visitations to Lot living in Sodom. And so let's go to the first visit. The first visit we looked at last week. Here in our sermons, which you can listen to as you come to our social media, just tune in to get the whole series. And in our Bible study groups, and the first visitation looked like this. A party of three persons arrived at Abraham's tent. It, was, it turned out to be a divine visitation. Two of them were angels and one is the Lord. And what was the purpose of this unexpected visit? Allow me to read from chapter 18, verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, and after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have the pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I shall return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Enter their world again. Pick up the storyline of the gospel. Pick up the storyline of salvation. An aged Abraham, a worn-out, menopausal, barren Sarah. Both of them, this aged couple, they are back against the bio clock. Stuck in a corner. A humanly impossible corner to get out of. How do we, how do we humanly enliven a womb, a womb? Where do we begin to unravel this Real dead end here. How? Where? It is God's promise. It is God's promise backed up by God's power. And this is a wonderful memory verse for all of us. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Look around you, listen. Wherever you're tuning in, is anything too hard for the Lord? in terms of his promises to save us. And the Lord says to Abraham, next time, next year at this time, you will have a child. God promises, God promises, and Sarah laughs. So when you pull it together, here's the big idea. God's visit to Abraham and Sarah was to double confirm personal blessings to him, and in him and through him and his family and descendants, world blessings and eternal blessings. Personal blessings to him first and his family and all who encounter them and then global and eternal blessings of all who take part in the promises of God through Abraham. And now we turn and now we move on to God's visit to Lot, Abraham's nephew, who had gone and chosen a better place, well watered, a valley, right? 
a place called Sodom, the bright lights of Sodom. And in this portion, we're going to look at three things. God shares his heart about this visit. Abraham shares his heart in response about what God is about to do. And then God is proven right in what he's about to do. And so firstly, God shares his heart. What do we mean? The two angels now move on to Sodom, and this is what we read. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. So the two men are off into the horizon. The Lord stood with Abraham. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great nation, a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. What do we see here? He carries on. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to do what? To keep the way of the Lord. How? By doing righteousness and justice. Why? So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what, has, what he has promised him. So what do we see? We see the Lord and Abraham standing side by side like two friends. And we, as we watch the two angels set off, and notice it is God who graciously initiates this conversation with Abraham. When we hear this and we are transported back, we look at the Lord and Abraham, the Lord and Abraham. How would you describe this scene? How would you describe their, their relationship? So special, so favoured, so close, so intimate. Abraham, of course, has heard of God's, God's promise to bless. Now, he must hear of God's instruction of what? God's instruction of Abraham's responsibility, why he's so special to be called by God. And so God shares with him his heart. God shares with Abraham his covenant partner. And what is the responsibility that Abraham is to have? Abraham, his children and his descendants must respond to God's promise of blessing with what? With righteousness and justice to keep the way of the Lord. If that is how he is to live out this covenant of blessing by pursuing righteousness and justice, by living not his own way but the way of the Lord, which is contrary to the way of the world, which is against God. Then the Lord said, verse 20, what is the flip side of this? What is the flip side against the way of the Lord? What's the flip side of righteousness and justice? Verse 20, then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very great, I will go down to see where they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Staggering truths from all that is unfolding to this. The flip side to God, the flip side to God and His undeserved blessings, the flip side to living God's way, the flip side, the opposite to righteousness and justice, is outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah or the crying evil that is resonating, shouting out, screaming out from these two cities. Literally, these cities have an entrenched lifestyle. They have a reputation, a name for what? Cities that have a name for being anti-God, for being sinful, for living against God. And we have modern, many modern-day cities but the original was Sodom and Gomorrah. I just want to tease this out with you. Right? The meaning of, I will go down to see whether they have done. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the... In other words, God is going to check this out before He brings His punishment upon them. He's going to check out their sinfulness. So I'm going to ask you a question. I hope you can respond whether you're watching at home alone or in fellowship with your family or friends. How many of you are, how many of you are younger than 37? 37 and younger. Hands up. 
That is to make sure that you are listening to this and you're responding to this message. If you are younger than 37 years of age, hands up. I watch American Got Talent. America Got Talent. And a contestant called Archie Williams, an Afro-American man. He spent nearly 37 years in prison for a rape, a crime he did not commit. And what led him to this miscarriage of justice that he experienced for 37 years of his life? A white woman in Louisiana was raped and stabbed in December 1982. In the police investigation, she repeatedly identified Archie Williams as she was shown photos and photos and lineup of different Afro-American men. But as the investigation unfolded, now in hindsight, even the police investigations was lopsided because they showed the, her the photos of Archie Williams more than anyone else. And she said, in hindsight, that she was about 70% sure it was him. Williams was then 22. He was home, asleep, at the time of the assault, of the rape. And his fingerprints were never found at, at the scene. But because they were baying and crying out for justice, a poor black kid didn't have any resources to fight the state of Louisiana. I'm just quoting him. So in 1983, in April 1983, he was convicted of attempted murder, aggravated rape, aggravated burglary, and sentenced to a life in prison without parole. After about 10 years, in a maximum security prison, a group called Innocence Project, right, a pro bono group, picked up his case, heard of his case, and they repeatedly tried, this legal non-profit repeatedly requested for DNA testing and fingerprint comparisons that could prove Archie Williams' innocence. But they were denied again and again and again. Why? They were denied for 20 over years. Because once there is a conviction, the legal system believes in the finality of the conviction, not in the truth of the case. You want me to say that in, again? They believe in the finality of the conviction, no longer in the truth of the case. But by God's grace, finally in 2019, Williams' fingerprints were submitted to the powerful fingerprint ID system and it proved that another black man had committed this sexual assaults in the neighborhood and he was responsible for the crimes that Williams was convicted of. And after 37 years, at 58 years old, Archie was freed. I don't know. There are many movies and stories out there about miscarriages of justice. We all hate miscarriages of justice. We are all repulsed by unjust punishment. And ultimately, we all struggle when we think it is perhaps God who may be guilty of misjudging and guilty of miscarriage of justice and guilty of the wrong punishment. I will go down to see whether they have done is a statement of justice. In what way? God will personally check out the sinfulness of Sodom and Gomorrah. And His justice and His judgment that flows will not be capricious, will not be fickle, will not be third party, will not be arm's length. He will personally, Almighty Creator God, will go down and check it out as ruler and as judge. So God's judge and just God as judge and His justice is thorough. He will leave no stone unturned. He will leave no questions unanswered. He will leave no evidence unexamined. And this is what He wanted Abraham and indeed all of us to know. Who do you think you're dealing with? The true and the living God, the holy God. And because there's the holy God, holiness matters, sinfulness matters, and wrath for that matters. This is the God we can trust. He desires to save mercifully, but He cannot compromise Himself. He cannot compromise His holiness and His justice, and so He must rightly judge and punish sin. So God has shared His heart with Abraham. You must carry on along my path, 
You and your family must seek righteousness and justice. Now Abraham, as he hears this, he's growing. He's growing in his knowledge of God, the character of God, the conduct of God. He's growing in knowledge of God now as a judge and the justice of God. Without this background, that God can be trusted to be thoroughly just in His holiness, then what happens after this does not make sense. And what does happen after this? Here is Williams, 37 years in prison for a rape he did not commit, singing his heart out that warned the hearts of the, not just the judges, but all who tune in to listen to him. And so, what happens after this? The man turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Lord, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city, will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Okay, another test. All who love shopping and all who love the thrill of bargaining, hands up. I think it is all of us, maybe not love shopping, but the thrill of bargaining. If you love bargaining, you have found a biblical passage for it. It's Genesis chapter 18, verse 22 to 33. Here are six rounds of bargaining. And the first three rounds, a little bit tepid, a little bit cautious, reducing it from 50 to 45 to 40. The next three rounds of bargaining is a little bit bolder, stronger. It goes from 30 to 20 to 10. And friends, as we understand this more faithfully and speak it more seriously, this is not a passage about haggling or bargaining. This is not the biblical basis for doing so. A couple were just saying to me, I asked them as I was preparing them for marriage class, what are some differences between you? I said, one of the differences is uh, for me. All right, the, the lady was saying, the girlfriend was saying, if I go somewhere and uh, we're buying something, especially the small vendors, etc., and they say the price is uh, $35, she said, oh, I'm just paid. Well, who she was dating said, oh, they were he will bargain and try to get the best bargain. And sometimes, and so we, we struggle with, should we bargain? Should we, should we bargain with God? This is not so much a bargaining, haggling passage. This is an exploration passage where Abraham cautiously explores this new side of God. This new side of God as judge and justice and judgment as he inches up on what basis will God judge righteousness and wickedness? Will he relent if he finds some people there in Sodom who may be righteous? Notice how did Abraham begin. He stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near. Drew near and then it moves on to, I am but dust and ashes. And finally, twice he says, let not the Lord be angry. Let not the Lord be angry as I request some more for a lessening of those figures. We see Abraham growing in his knowledge of God, his character and God's heart. He starts to see, I think, God's aching choice, God's painful choice. And what is God's aching painful choice? God's heartbreaking choice between undeservedly discharging mercy and rightly dispensing justice and judgment for sin. And so we see Abraham growing from a partner in the covenant to a prophet who has some insight to what God is going to do in the future very soon to now he is a petitioner from partner to prophet to petitioner for God's mercy. Notice how this bargaining ends. How does it end? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. That's how it began. That's how it began. Right? And how did it end? It ended with 
just the pleading for 10. And so, lessons to lessons here. Abraham saying to God, does God know? Does, does God know? Is he going to bunch Lot, my nephew, with the rest of the Sodomites? And if he does know, does he care? If he does care, will he have the, have the power to separate the righteous from the wicked? And so he enters, I think, into God's aching choice, a judge. But this judge, does he know how to balance mercy and justice? And the answer is yes. As we now come up close and personal to what God encounters. So God is now proven right. In what way? Genesis 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, bowed himself, bowed himself with his face to the earth, and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. Lot persisted. He pressed them strongly. He pleaded. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked them unleavened bread and they ate. So, God shares his heart about what he's about to do. Abraham shares his heart and he, he explores God's mercy and God's justice. And all this it's unknown, this scene between God and Abraham and God and Abraham and not the haggling or the bargaining, but the exploration is unknown to who? It's unknown to Lot and his family and the men and women of Sodom. And by the time we arrive at chapter 19, it can be understood in three parts. Lot's response to God's visitation, verse 1 to 3. The Sodomites' response to God's visitation. And last but not least, God's rescue of Lot and his family. So Lot's response to God's visitation. There are similarities as you read this account between how Abraham and Lot right, responded to this divine visitation. They were both sincere, they were warm, they were big-hearted, they were hospitable. Very huge thing in that part of the world of that kind of, of the people then. But there are differences. Abraham was out in the country. He was sitting in a tent. His life was nomadic. Lot, his nephew, was in a city. He was sitting at the gate, signaling that he had become, because the, the ones who sit at the gate had become some men of prominence, some leadership. And the timing is different. For Abraham, it was in the daytime. And for Lot, it was evening, approaching night, signaling Something, nightfall, darkness, always symbolizes something ominous. For Abraham, there was a lavish meal cooked up by, cooked by, by Sarah. For Lot, it was a hasty meal and there's no mention of Mrs. Lot, his wife. But most importantly, you ask yourself, why was Lot sitting at the gate? What was he looking out for and what was he looking after? And we sit there and say, could it possibly that he was looking out for and looking after any innocent visitors who may chance upon Sodom but had not heard of the reputation, the, the sexual warpness of the people of Sodom? And what do you mean by that? We now not just see Lot's response to this visitation, but the Sodomites' response to this visitation. Verse 4, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lord, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And know is a word that hints of sexual, sexual knowledge. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not... Do not act so with wickedly. Don't do this. So, what can we make? Genesis 19, men of the city, both young and old, 
all the peoples to the last man. We have seen this kind, we have read this kind of description before. We have seen this kind of spiritual diagnosis by God before. We have read of this very thorough description of our sinfulness where? In Noah's generation, in Genesis, Genesis 6 verse 5, where it says, the Lord saw, and what did the Lord see? The Lord God saw the wickedness of men was great in the earth, and every intention of his heart was only evil all the time. So God's diagnosis of Noah's generation, the thoughts of their minds was only evil all the time. Three superlatives. No escaping it. Rotten, rotten, rotten to the core in every sense, spiritually and sexually. Then in chapter 13, verse 13, after Lot had chosen first, he looked at the fertile valley of Sodom. He chose the bright lights and the fertile valley of Sodom. This was a line written in by the narrator. Genesis 13, 13, now the men of Sodom were, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And so by the time we arrive here at Genesis 19, it's not, it's not new. It speaks about from Genesis 3 onwards, the spread of sin from the first woman, the first lady, Eve, right, to the first family. Genesis 4, sibling rivalry. So it spreads downwards, the solidarity of sin, where Cain kills his brother Abel. Then it spreads even further in Cain's line. Then it comes up to Noah, where their thoughts are only evil all the time. Then it spreads to the Tower of Babel and they set out to make a name for themselves. Whatever you do not know of the story of the Bible is a sad story of the infectivity of sin, the contagiousness of sin. Oh, what huge medical word have I used? Infectivity of sin. Sounds like COVID-19. Sounds like COVID-19 indeed. But not just the infectivity, the contagiousness of this, but the mortality, the spread and the depth, the tentacles of sin and the deviousness of sin and the devastation of sin. This is a spiritual, social, sexual cancer. It is malignant. It has spread beyond control. And here is the up-close and personal view with the men of Sodom, young and old, all of them. And so how do you deal with this sexual depravity? This is how Lot tried to deal with it. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and, do, and you do to them as you please. This is despicable of any father beginning with Lot. And maybe it's because he knew that their tendencies was not attracted to women. No matter what it was, it was still immoral. Only do nothing to this man, for they have come under the shelter of my, my roof. Is he preferring his, his hospitality to the purity of his daughters? But they said, stand back. The men of Sodom said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourns. Lord, you came to sojourn. You're always a foreigner. Please don't let it get to your head. That some, you, you, you may be a leader, but you are a lame duck leader. He has become the judge. The foreigner must never be a judge of us. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And he goes on. Then they pressed hard against the man, the man Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And when they struck, and they struck with blindness, the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so they wore themselves out, groping for the door. We only have time to summarize here, friends. But how would you describe this scene? You should describe it as dark and devious, devilish, horrifying, terrifying picture of what? Of men and boys on heat. Men and boys on heat. Men and boys behaving like bees who must get their dose of sex of their own preferences and is matched by Lot's morally reprehensible offer of his daughters. So all hell has broken loose. Right? 
in Lot's household, about to break loose. Men without God are men without limits. And men without limits, they church, we cheer each other on, we goad each other on to do what? This is bad behavior powered by bad courage. Partners in rebellion, partners in crime, partners in sin, partners in alternatives. But they will be, they will be unilaterally asymptomatic. They will be unilaterally blasé about this, blind and dismissive. We keep saying, I keep saying to you as I teach you here and as I preach everywhere, there's only one thing worse than sin. Please tell me, all members of ARPC, all regulars who tune in, there's only one thing worse than sin. Our blindness to sin. And here we see the men are spiritually blind. Now they are physically blinded. Men on heat cannot be stopped unless God gate crashes to stop them in their utmost darkest depravity. The infectivity of this and the mortality of this, the depravity of this. God's rescue of Lot. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? The sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. These are the angels saying to Lot, for we are about to destroy this place. We have checked it out on behalf of God because the outcry against His people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. No evidence will be unexamined. No questions will be unanswered. The Lord has been proven right in His justice and His forthcoming judgment. He has proven right. And so, what do we find them doing? So Lord went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons, his sons-in-law, to be jesting. Only one thing worse than sin is to be blind to the seriousness of sin and the repercussions of sin. And how does it unfold? It gets worse and worse. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept in the punishment of the city. And Lot left. No, friends, you don't read that. But Lot lingered. So the two men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. And the Lord, being merciful to him, they brought him out and set him outside the city. And so, lessons, plenty. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life, do not look back, or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Lessons for us, plenty. The New Testament reflects on this in many different ways. But here are the key teachings, beginning with how our Lord Jesus reflected on Lot, on Sodom and Gomorrah. Likewise, Jesus says, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. And if you don't remember this passage at all, just remember this verse. As much as if you don't remember anything from Genesis 18, is there anything too hard for the Lord to do in terms of saving us? Here in Luke 17, remember Lot's wife. And what is the lesson for us? Whoever seeks to preserve his life in the man-made cities of this world, in the man-made man uh, mirages of this world, in the man-made Babylons of this world, in the man-made Sodoms and Gomorrahs of this world, whoever preserves his life will lose it. 
but whoever loses his life in hearing me and the gospel will keep it. And so can we draw some lessons together? This is the Lord Jesus giving his take of the one story, the one word of the one story of salvation. And what is his take? Please don't laugh at our sin and God's wrath. Like Lot's son-in-laws, laugh at sin and God's coming wrath. Please don't linger like Lot. Please don't offer God counter-suggestions and alternatives. The angel said, head to the hills. Can I go to a smaller city? He still hasn't got it. Please don't look back like Lot's wife. Please remember Lot's wife. Please don't look back like her and do what? Please don't look back with idolatrous security. Security in our own man-made cities with romantic nostalgia. Please don't back with a, look back with a difficult longing. Addictive longing for what? For a life that we built with our own hands, with our own wisdom of self-pleasing and self-glory and self-rule and self-laws. Please also don't take things into your own hands. Because when you read how this account ends, it will end with finally Lot runs to the hills and there in the hills he hides in a cave and he's there with his two daughters and they face two things. Isolation leading to desperation. Who's going to give us children now? Who are we going to marry? And women without children in the ancient world was desperado. From isolation to desperation to rebellion. And so they figure out with their own wisdom, they make their father drunk and they sleep with him. And from the two daughters will come two tribes that become the enemies of Israel. Please, don't laugh and mock at God's coming wrath like Lot's sons-in-laws. Please don't linger like Lot. Please don't look back with idolatrous security, romantic nostalgia, addictive longing for the life without God in our cities. Please don't take things into our own hands like Lot's daughters. Please, like Lot and his family, don't squander a new beginning. That seems to be the overall message when we look at the New Testament passages. So how are you treating sin in your life? You taking it seriously in any shape and form? Your sins of thought and word and deed that you have just experienced in the past week? But as you tune into this, this is another casual thing until I've spoken this with all my passion, bringing to myself and bringing to you the word of God, that God is real and holiness is real and sin is real and punishment for sin is real. And no matter how much we try to normalize that, no matter how much we try to cancel it out, no matter how much we try to normalize that, but our political sensitivities, by our political correctness, by our sexual correctness in our modern day world, we cannot, we cannot belittle the holiness, the mercy, and the judgment of God. There's another passage in Jude. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe and the angels who did not keep their position of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling. And he goes on. This he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, who? Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffered the punishment of eternal fire. And so now as we come to Jude, what do we find? We find here a very important warning. An important warning is this. What is the important warning? Please, never get used to living outside God's calling. Please never get used to an alternative God-given nature. 
whether it's angelic beings or human beings. He didn't create us to live this way, to long for each other this way. Please don't cross the boundaries. There's a right and wrong way to live life. There's a right and wrong way to use our bodies. There's a right and wrong way to sexuality. And once we step outside, and so a lesson from history, don't be like Moses' generation who didn't live up to God's calling. Don't be like the angels, the angelic beings who didn't live up to God's nature. Don't be like Sodom and Gomorrah who didn't live up to their human nature, their sexual natures created by God. I think there is no denying that what happens in Sodom is totally displeasing to God. And so what can we learn? What can we learn is always this. Jesus, when he comes, he brings God's final visitation. And God's final visitation is exactly what we read about in Genesis 18 and 19. He comes mercifully to reaffirm and double confirm he's out to personally bless Abraham and through him to bring global blessings. And you will only take part in the global blessings if you believe that Jesus has come from Abraham's line. But if you choose to reject Jesus as Saviour and Lord, God's final Messiah and God's final judge, then the ending reserved for us is going to be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. So I do not know. God's visitation of your life, will you welcome Him or will you detest Him? And God could be visiting your life to do what? God could be visiting your life through a spouse. God could be get, get crashing your life through a spouse who just discovered and chanced upon your adultery, your betrayal. Do you resent your spouse who discovered that? Are you going to humble yourself and say, thank God she discovered this so I don't have to go on lying and I can get it right? Has God get crashed your life through a parent who stopped you from gaming? endlessly and from get company? Has God crashed your life through a child, a child who has discovered you as a father who is addicted to online gambling? Are you, are you happy when God crashes your life? That's what we are talking about, friends. When we humbly accept Jesus, is God's merciful and gracious intervention to save us and to bless us. When we proudly deny sin and reject Jesus' final offer of salvation, we stand in only one position under God, His rightful wrath and His eternal judgment and punishment against us. So how are you responding to Jesus' visitation upon your life? By God's grace, the country is loosening up in terms of the measures and because things are stabilizing in terms of the COVID-19 spread. And so as part of this good news, churches, services may be able to reopen with the new guidelines to 100. So we pray and we hope, as we announce it now, that ARPC, we are praying and intending to open by next week with 100. And here is the QR code, is that right? If you want to join us, right? and we will be taking you through the registrations. Please read the pastoral letter that's there. We are all excited. We will put as many, uh, uh, all the uh, different guidelines into place, and we hope and pray that you long to come back. How many of you are dying to come back to church? By the grace of God, put up your hand, right? Put up your hand, dying. Please, this is one of the great worries. And one of the great worries around the world is this. You may be so comfortable now sitting and existing and actually flourishing in your own virtual world, you may be sitting there in splendid isolation and in splendid desperation or splendid enjoyment that you, you, you don't need God's people anymore. I, I would en encourage you, don't arrive in that spiritual bubble, in that spiritual delusion. Because whether you are we are on our downstream of thinking badly of yourself or you're satisfying, satisfying yourself with pleasure in your own cocoon and bubble and you don't like to meet people who remind you of God's, God's church, remind you of God's, God's Christ, remind you of God's holiness, 
please come back. Because Christian fellowship is a panacea, is a vaccine against, against personal sin of isolation, desperation, and rebellion against God. So we want you to slowly but surely come back. And we have three services of this in, in October. Three services of this every weekend, 100 people, 900 can come back. And if it opens up some more, 250 over November. We pray so across the board in Singapore. 250 people, three services, about 4,000 people can come back. Come back. Worship God together. Last but not least, this is about the visitation of God to our nations, to our neighbourhood, and to our own hearts and to our own homes. And God has blessed us with ARPC at Tenga. And next week, if all things are in place in terms of the reopening, we are going to also officially launch the fundraising for this. We pass it with an overwhelming mandate at the ACM. God's gift to us, even though the timing seems wrong, but God's timing always seems wrong to us. Wrong time to give us a place. Wrong time for us to be raising funds. Never wrong. The pursuit of God's purpose and the pursuit of God's kingdom is always uphill. The call to faith is always dying to self, take up the cross, follow Him. And so as we launch this, we've given you the QR code, we'll say a little bit more about it. Please give, because we're not asking you to give to a building. We're asking you to give to people, pastors, leaders, members who will go forth and proclaim Christ through lips and life, bringing the promise of blessing to save and bringing the warning of judgment. And so God has given us this extra platform. And for the next three years, two, three years, we want to prepare as many of us from children's church to youth to adults to singles to couples. And we'll be rolling that out in terms of our plans next year. Friends, please accept the gracious visitation of God and accept that Jesus is Lord. Let's turn to God in prayer. Indeed, you are God, and Jesus is Lord. And because he is Lord, we can trust you completely for your undeserved mercy to save us and your rightful justice to judge us. And we pray that as you visit us, as you speak your word, as you speak the gospel, as Jesus, you enter into our hearts and our homes, we will humbly accept you as our Lord and our Saviour and experience the blessings promised so long ago to Abraham, but now to be experienced in our hearts, to the glory of God our Father, forever and ever. Amen.